Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Theodore Grebner said, There is some real justification, aside from historical regards and the principles of good taste, for a churchly church building. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why is church architecture worth considering? What do spires, steeples, bricks, and mortar confess? What have architecture and furnishings to do with what goes on in a church building? The insightful scholars in Wittenberg Academy's Philosophy Club recently took up the topic of church architecture. After several weeks on the topic, the conversation flowed very naturally to the music of the church. This should not surprise us when we ponder enduring things that naturally begets the pondering of that which endures. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I am pondering something intently, it seems to show up everywhere. This past week, for example, the Imaginative Conservative, an online journal for those who seek the true, the good, and the beautiful, ran an article entitled, Where We Find God, the Significance of Church Architecture. Later, I was reading some G.K. Chesterton and ran across his essay, The Architect of Spears. This, then, took me back to Philosophy Club and our discussion of church architecture. With all of this talk of and pondering of church architecture, it seemed only right to devote an episode of the Wittenberg Hour to the topic. We believe, teach, and confess in the Lutheran Church that doctrine drives practice. What we believe has and should have an impact on how we conduct the liturgy and what we sing during the divine service. But what of the building and furnishings? Do they matter? Joining me today for our discussion of church architecture are Pastor Theodore Grebner and Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Now, when you hear those names, you might be wondering, now, how are they going to join you today on the Wittenberg Hour? Well, they're joining us through their writings, which have endured. And so we get to benefit from their thoughts that they pondered many years ago. Interestingly enough, these guys lived around the same time. Now, granted, Reverend Dr. Grebner lived in the United States and G.K. Chesterton lived in England, but at the same time, on opposite sides of the pond, they were pondering the likes of church architecture. So what a fantastic opportunity to bring these two guys together through their writings to the Wittenberg Hour so that we can ponder this topic, this important topic of church architecture. Pastor Grebner lived from 1876 to 1950. G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. Pastor Grebner was a pastor and a professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and G.K. Chesterton was a writer, a philosopher, a lay theologian, and a literary and art critic. Pastor Grebner wrote a little book called The Victory of the Cross, 
chapters from the history of the early church, and we would certainly recommend that as well. Among other things, he wrote a little book in 1932 called Pastor and People, Letters to a Young Preacher. Here is an excerpt from that book regarding church architecture. It is true, of course, that one can worship God as well in an edifice built in violation of good architecture as in a church which conforms to this principle. And still, not absolutely. There is some real justification, aside from historical regards and the principles of good taste, for a churchly church building. In worship, the mind is directed to things above, and it is possible by the builder's art to remind the worshiper as he enters the house of God, as he permits his eye to rest upon the furnishings, and even on its lines and proportions of the purpose of his presence there, and to aid him towards setting his mind in tune for communion with God in prayer and song. In our Lutheran church, the message of the word in pulpit and sacrament is the heart of our services, and it is possible so to repress the chief part of the service by means of unsuited architecture and design that the worshiper will fail to receive the impression of the solemnity of the place and the occasion which is so great a help to intelligent worship. It is difficult, in the absence of illustration and without detailed discussion of the elements of church art, to explain how mind and spirit are affected by architecture. Yet, so much ought to be plain, that even as in the erection of buildings for secular uses, certain principles of design have become accepted as best suited for the spirit or purpose of the building. So the appearance of a church, both as to general design and interior trim and furnishings, should correspond to the purpose which it serves. Nay, the distinctly Lutheran features of our worship, as above alluded, ought to find expression in, or at least ought not to be contradicted by, the style in which we build our churches. It will not do to say in defense of haphazard church building plans that it does not matter how we build so long as we have the true gospel. The congregation that hires an incompetent architect and finds that a tower must be taken down because the footings were only two feet wide will refuse to be comforted by this reflection. Nor will it console the congregation which is offended every Sunday by the abominable acoustics of the building or which will, so long as the structure stands, suffer from the architect's inexperience because of misplaced pillars, lack of coordination between organ loft and altar space, or insufficient exits, not to speak of the faults of heating and lighting. Art is not a matter of size. A small church can be made to express the very highest ideals of churchly architecture. Some of the noblest examples of Gothic in Europe are small structures. Nor, let it be said, is Gothic the only style by which an effect of revering, nobility, and beauty can be obtained. Some of our congregations in Southern California are building churches in Spanish mission style, which are not only suited to climate and surroundings, but very beautiful. More recently, we have churches built in the Byzantine style in Washington, D.C., and in St. Louis, and elsewhere which satisfy the sense of beauty as well as the needs of the congregation. So far, Pastor Grebner.
Now, Pastor Grebner's reflection on church architecture leads us beautifully to G.K. Chesterton's thoughts on church architecture in his essay, The Architect of Spears, from the book A Miscellany of Men. Here's what Chesterton has to say. The other day, in the town of Lincoln, I suffered an optical illusion, which accidentally revealed to me the strange greatness of the Gothic architecture. Its secret is not, I think, satisfactorily explained in most of the discussions on the subject. It is said that the gossip it is said that the Gothic eclipses the classical by a certain richness and complexity, at once lively and mysterious. This is true. But Oriental decoration is equally rich and complex, yet it awakens a widely different sentiment. No man ever got out of a turkey carpet the emotions that he got from a cathedral tower. Over all the exquisite ornament of Arabia and India, there is the presence of something stiff and heartless, of something tortured and silent. Dwarf trees and crooked serpents, heavy flowers and hunchback birds, accentuated, accentuate by the very splendor and contrast of their color, the servility and monotony of their shapes. It is like the vision of a sneering sage who sees the whole universe as a pattern. Certainly, no one ever felt like this about Gothic, even if he happens to dislike it. Or again, some will say that it is the liberty of the Middle Ages in the use of the comic or even the coarse that makes the Gothic more interesting than the Greek. There is more truth in this, indeed. There is real truth in it. Few of the old Christian cathedrals would have passed the censor of plays. We talk of the inimitable grandeur of the old cathedrals, but indeed it is rather their gaiety that we do not dare to imitate. We should be rather surprised if a chorister suddenly began singing Bill Bailey in church. Yet that would be only doing in music what the medievals did in sculpture. They put into a miserere seat the very scenes that we put into a music hall. Comic domestic scenes similar to the spilling of the beer and the hanging out of the washing. But though the gaiety of Gothic is one of its features, it also is not the secret of its unique effect. We see a domestic topsy-turvydom in many Japanese sketches, but delightful as these are, with their fairy treetops, paper houses, and toddling infantile inhabitants, the pleasure they give is of a kind quite different from the joy and energy of the gargoyles. Some have even been so shallow and illiterate as to maintain that our pleasure in medieval building is a mere pleasure in what is barbaric, in what is rough, shapeless, or crumbling like the rocks. This can be dismissed after the same fashion. South Sea idols with painted eyes and radiating bristles are a delight to the eye, but they do not affect it in at all the same way as Westminster Abbey. Some again, going to another and almost equally foolish extreme, ignore the coarse and comic in medievalism and praise the pointed arch only for its utter purity and simplicity, as of a saint with his hands joined in prayer. Here again, the uniqueness is missed. 
There are Renaissance things, such as the ethereal silvery drawings of Raphael. There are even pagan things, such as the praying boy, which expresses fresh and austere a piety. None of these explanations explain. And I never saw what was the real point about Gothic till I came into the town of Lincoln and saw it behind a row of furniture vans. I did not know they were furniture vans. At the first glance, and in the smoky distance, I thought they were a row of cottages. A low stone wall cut off the wheels, and the vans were somewhat of the same color as the yellowish clay or stone of the buildings around them. I had come across that interminable eastern plain, which is like the open sea, and all the more so because the one small hill and tower of Lincoln stands up in it like a lighthouse. I had climbed the sharp, crooked streets up to this ecclesiastical citadel. Just in front of me was a flourishing and richly colored kitchen garden. Beyond that was the low stone wall. Beyond that was the row of vans that looked like houses. And beyond and above that, straight and swift and dark, light as a flight of birds and terrible as the Tower of Babel, Lincoln Cathedral seemed to rise out of human sight. As I looked at it, I asked myself the questions that I have asked here. What was the soul in all those stones? They were varied, but it was not variety. They were solemn, but it was not solemnity. They were farcical, but it was not farce. What is it in them that thrills and soothes a man of our blood and history that is not there in an Egyptian pyramid or an Indian temple or a Chinese pagoda? All of a sudden, the vans I had mistaken for cottages began to move away to the left. In the start this gave to my eye and mind, I really fancied that the cathedral was moving towards the right. The two huge towers seemed to start striding across the plain like the two legs of some giant whose body was covered with the clouds. Then I saw what it was. The truth about Gothic is, first, that it is alive, and second, that it is on the march. It is the church militant. It is the only fighting architecture. All its spires are spears at rest, and all its stones are stones asleep in a catapult. In that instant of illusion, I could hear the arches clash like swords as they crossed each other. The mighty and numberless columns seemed to go swinging by like the feet of imperial elephants. The graven foliage wreathed in blue like banners going into battle. The silence was deafening with all the mingled noises of a military march. The great bell shook down as the organ shook up its thunder. The thirsty-throated gargoyles shouted like trumpets from all the roofs and pinnacles as they passed. And from the lectern in the core of the cathedral, the eagle of the awful evangelist clashed his wings of brass. And amid all the noises, I seemed to hear the voice of a man shouting in the midst, like one ordering regiments hither and thither in the fight. The voice of the great half-military master builder, the architect of spears. I could almost fancy he wore armor while he made that church, and I knew indeed that under a scriptural figure he had borne in either hand the trowel and the sword. I could imagine for the moment that the whole of that house of life had marched out of the sacred east, alive and interlocked, like an army. Some eastern nomad had found it solid and silent. 
in the red circle of the desert. He had slept by it as by a world forgotten pyramid and been woke at midnight by the wings of stone and brass, the tramping of the tall pillars, the trumpets of the water spouts. On such a night, every snake or sea beast must have turned and twisted in every crypt or corner of the architecture and fiercely colored saints marching eternally in the flamboyant windows would have carried their glorials like torches across the dark lands and distant seas till the whole mountain of music and darkness and lights descended roaring on the lonely Lincoln Hill. So for some 180 seconds, I saw the battle beauty of the Gothic. Then when the last furniture van shifted itself away and I saw only a church tower in a quiet English town round which the English birds were floating. So far, Chesterton. Jake Scott, the author of the imaginative conservative article mentioned at the beginning of this episode, raises the question in the context of 2020 and 21 of whether we as Christians need to worship in a particular place. He then goes on to describe his own church, St. Augustine's of Hippo. He says, It is worth pointing out at the outset that religious architecture in the Christian tradition is intentionally overawing. The church I attend, St. Augustine's of Hippo, is located at the center of a roundabout-style circle of grass round which a number of residential buildings congregate. In times past, the spire of the church would have been the most visible construct for miles, but modern dwellings have taken a decidedly less supplicatory turn and now flats stand either as tall as, or just a little shorter than, the spire. What is noticeable, however, is the difference between those residential buildings and the spire in the reaction they produce in the observer. When you round the corner to approach to church, you are confronted with the faceless and lattice-like flats that replicate the same monotonous floors. You see this once, and you have seen it all, especially in modern blocks of flats. There are no gildings or stonework that arrest your attention for anything longer than a moment. Contrast this, for instance, to the church itself. When you see it, your eyes are instantly drawn up. The spire, so consciously pointing to heaven, is decorated with accoutrements, both humble and bold, which entertain the eye, tease the aesthetic gaze ever upwards, and remind you almost unconsciously and immediately of the focus of this place. It is not this world, but the world beyond, the place where God dwells, behind the physical facade of the real and in the transcendental space of eternity. Just as you marvel at the spire, so too do you notice the humility of the external building itself. With neatly sloped roofs and crisscrossing brickwork, the eye is drawn to the only ostentatious parts of the church, the stained glass windows. Even these, however, are humbly hidden and can only truly be appreciated from inside. Thus, you are drawn into the building itself almost relentlessly. And I'm going to pause here for a moment. We'll come back to this article. But 
have you ever, as you're perhaps walking into your own church, if your church has a steeple, have you ever looked up to the top of the steeple, especially on a day when clouds are going overhead and felt as though the steeple was just going to topple over on you? I remember when I was younger attending Lutheran school and we would, uh, our Lutheran school had two places where uh, children would cross the street. And so when we were in seventh and eighth grade, if I remember correctly, uh, we, we would take turns serving as crossing guards. And so we would make sure it was safe for children to cross in these two places. And I loved being assigned the corner uh, that was right next to the steps going up uh, to the church. Because uh, my church, uh, the, the, the church that was attached to my school, had one of those steeples that when you looked straight up, especially on a day that the sky was blue and the, the white clouds were, were extra puffy and they were headed toward me, truly felt like the steeple was just going to topple over on me. And I just, I loved that sensation. And when I was reading Chesterton, and when I was reading the beginning of the article from the Imaginative Conservative, that memory came flooding back to me of standing there in my crossing guard belt, looking up at the steeple, feeling like the whole thing was just going to topple over on me. Now, obviously, that is a departure from the, the austerity of, of, of where we're going with our discussion today. And yet at the same time, there is something about that that makes us pause. Other buildings don't necessarily have that same effect, do they? The grander, the eyes being drawn up, you know, some churches and a lot of churches don't have the tall steeple. You know, maybe there's a bell tower that's flat on top or whatever. But there's there's generally something that draws your eyes up. And then, as Mr. Scott suggests, that because stained glass windows are meant to be viewed from the inside, the architecture itself draws us inside. There's something in there. And so it's not that the architecture is there to serve itself. It's there to serve the purpose for which the building exists. But thinking back to Chesterton's reflection, his uh, recalling of this moment when this moment when the vans are driving away and it looks like the cathedral is marching the other way. And that imagery 
should also give us a moment to pause because there is something about a church building as the house of the church militant. There should be something enduring and perhaps even a little bit foreboding about a church building because it is standing as an ark. It is a place of refuge. It is the place we run to hear God's word and receive his sacraments. There should be something different about that building. And both Mr. Scott and Mr. Chesterton point this out. And Pastor Grebner also points this out. There should be something distinct about a church building. And we haven't even gotten inside the building. Right now we're just looking at the outside, that there should be something different about the outside of the building. And of course, the discussion on this I mean, we could spend multiple episodes discussing church architecture, church furnishings, all of these sorts of things. Today, we're looking from a 50,000-foot view and perhaps challenging ourselves to pause and say, okay, why have we been given this heritage that we've been given? Why steeples? Why spires? Why bricks? Why mortar? Why do these things matter? And you think about the church militant, being part of the church militant, having bricks and mortar and spires and steeples and things that draw our eyes up even before we've even gone in the building, it confesses something, doesn't it? In this next section of his article, we go inside the church. Here's what Mr. Scott says. It is when we enter the church, however, that we truly feel that sense of awe at its zenith. Whenever I walk into a church or cathedral built in the classical or vernacular styles, I always notice how cold it is. My breath coalesces in the air before me, and the faint breeze that comes from somewhere tickles the back of my neck. I find myself wrapping my coat tighter and burying my hands in my pockets. At the same time, the hollow falls of my footsteps reverberate into the chill air around me, and even the slightest noise is carried away across the pews in such a way that I find myself whispering to the church warden as I take the pew sheet. I strain to see the pew sheet in the close darkness as I sit on the hard wooden seats and compare it to the dusty prayer and hymn books to find that week's verses. Some might think this description a negative one. Indeed, it does not sound comfortable. But this is not the point. When entering the church, we are overawed by the surroundings, all of which work together to create a sense of smallness in us, a feeling not of inferiority, 
but of human scale, a scale that must be remembered in the face of God. Some commentators have gone so far as to say this discomfort is the point. Roger Scruton said much the same in England, an elegy. When he wrote of the hard wooden pews as an incentive to good posture, and even as compulsion for us to prefer kneeling. Departing then from Mr. Scott, it's interesting to ponder this idea. Many times we want to have a feeling of warmth, right? We want our churches to feel welcoming. We want them to feel cozy. Is that the right feel? These are all good questions to ponder, right? And so when we think about our churches, should the nave, the sanctuary, should they be cozy? Or should they put us in awe? These are questions worth asking, right? Mr. Scott goes on to discuss these ideas further. He says, all of this, however, does something more for the Christian soul. It fills one with a sense of the sublime. This concept, the sublime, is uniquely misunderstood in the philosophy of aesthetics, but it is the most accurate description of the feeling I have at the threshold of a church. In the mid-18th century work entitled A Philosophical Enquiry into the Origins of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful, Edmund Burke wrote that we could understand the sublime as something akin to pleasurable terror. What this seemingly paradoxical term actually means is that terror is the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. It paralyzes us when we experience it in its purest form. The mind is so entirely filled with its object that it cannot entertain another. Although terror is often understood as a painful experience, Burke tells us it can be pleasurable when associated with the right thought. Burke says, quote, the passion caused by the great and the sublime in nature when those causes operate most powerfully is astonishment. And astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are suspended with some degree of horror. End quote. Simon Court, in an excellent essay, observed that, quote, another source of the sublime is what Burke calls infinity, where the eye is not able to perceive the bounds of something or see an object distinctly, and this gives rise to a terrible uncertainty of the thing perceived, end quote. Quote, infinity has a tendency to fill the mind with that sort of delightful horror which is the most genuine effect, the truest test of the sublime, end quote. Mr. Scott goes on, imagine, for instance, standing at the precipice of a cliff face. It is there that we experience a true moment of the sublime in nature. What concerns me more, however, is what the sublime shows us regarding our faculty for reason. As Burke says of reason and terror, the sublime emerging the sublime emerges in that most paralyzing moment when our reasonable mind 
is incapable of contemplating anything but the object it beholds. It reveals to us, in other words, the very edge of our capacity for knowledge. This is not the same as the edge of our knowledge, which one can, by learning, expand further. The point here is specifically that the sublime reveals the edge of our capacity for knowledge and gestures towards the most incomprehensible of things, the transcendental, of which we can only find mere expressions in the world. The sublime, in other words, reveals to us, through the pure moment of astonishment, the limits of our capacity for rational thought and understanding. I find much the same when I walk into a church, Mr. Scott continues. I am not there for pleasure. I am there to behold the word of God, and the sublime setting of the church enhances that feeling. So how can the sublime be rendered in brick and mortar? Simply through those elements of the church I have enumerated above. The cold, the acoustics, the darkness, the hardness, the age. All of these work together to create a sublime setting. But what, it must be asked, does this have to do with God? As Burke reminds us, the sublime is pleasurable terror, the feeling that, through revealing the limits of our rational mind, returns us to the ground on which we stand and the world in which we live, provided that terror is associated with a good thought. And what thought could be more full of goodness than God? God, however, exists in the transcendental realm. He is immaterial and beyond natural limits and so beyond our natural comprehension. Hence, thoughts of him must be summoned into our unconscious mind through the word and through the places in which we worship him. It is there, in that cold, dark, uncomfortable hall, that we find God. Mr. Scott is an adherent of the Roman Catholic faith. As Lutherans, we see things similarly to Mr. Scott in many ways, but we also see them differently in other ways. Our catechism certainly is helpful in this, and certainly the scriptures. God is there, present. Jesus is there in the divine service, present for us. He's promised to be there in word and sacrament. We receive him wholly and bodily in our mouths when we eat his body and drink his blood in, with, and under the bread and wine. Faith understands these things. And yet, to Mr. Scott's point, there is a certain element of the environment, the surroundings, that should point us to and propel us toward, that should focus our mortal bodies, as Pastor Eckhart has told us in the past, that remind us, remind us over and over, constantly propelling us to look toward where Jesus has promised to be for us. The things that we do in the divine service, the buildings in which we worship, should not distract us from Jesus. 
We shouldn't be so comfortable that we forget that we are in the presence of the creator of the universe. These are all things worth pondering. These are all good things worth considering. When we walk in our churches, when we walk up to our churches, what do they confess? Do they confess the enduring? Or do they confess the transient? When we walk into our churches, when we walk into the nave, where do our eyes go first? Do they go where Jesus has promised to be for us? Do our eyes naturally look to the altar? Do they naturally look to the pulpit? Is the font visible that we are reminded of the means by which, through God's word, we became part of the family of God? These are all important questions. Children, perhaps, are better able to see some of these things than we are, right? They notice things. They notice when a building doesn't feel like home. And because of that, they might act differently than when they are at home. This is not to say they are not going to continue to act like children because children cannot act other than what they are. But there is a childlike reverence that is inspired by a reverent place. Thinking back to G.K. Chesterton's illustration, what he imagined he saw, the marching church, the marching cathedral, it bears considering. Do our churches confess the church militant? Do they confess the endurance? Do they confess the enduring? We know that bricks and stones and spires will crumble. We know that the grass withers and the flowers fall. We know that only the word of the Lord endures forever. But should we not consider a house for God that confesses the endurance of his word? Thank you to Pastor Grebner, G.K. Chesterton, and Mr. Scott for joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.